We are thankful today, or I'm thankful especially, to have uh, Pastor David Toy with us to come and share this morning, to uh, share scripture with us and really share a challenge to us. Pastor David is there in Chicago at the Church of the Beloved. Now, we have established a partnership with him. Uh, back in April or so, I think I met Dave and uh, just heard his heart for the nations and saw how God was just blessing his church there. And we have partnered with them to see God continue to do things in Chicago. Now, I know some of you are saying, I thought this was an international emphasis. Chicago is not necessarily international. Well, let me tell you, Dave's church represents about 35 nations in that one church. He has a heart for the nations, of reaching the nations here and reaching the nations around the world. And when we met with him and we prayed, we felt like he was the one to come and challenge us this morning to be people who will take the good news of Christ wherever we are, but especially to the nations that we see here and we see across this globe. So I want you to pray for him as he comes. I want you to welcome him today as we come together to worship and to hear what God would say to us. Dave, come and speak God's word to us. Well, it's good to uh, be here. I appreciate Dr. Reggie's introduction that Chicago is not necessarily uh, an international city. Um, I think people are still not sure about that. Um, but I've been really blessed. Uh, some of you guys have never met me, uh, but I've met uh, quite a few of the people who are members here at this church. And uh, one of the things I've been so impressed by is just the humility and the servant hearts that the college students who come up to Chicago, as well as the staff that I've met, uh, have exhibited and reflected and displayed and just even your willingness to partner with a church in Chicago. Uh, we're a new church, we're a, a church plant and uh, God's been really gracious to us to be able to, as Dr. Reggie said, uh, not only reach 35 nations uh, but also reach many people who've never heard of the gospel who are coming to our own uh, nation, to our own cities um, and have never heard of Jesus. Some of them have literally never heard of who Jesus is and they're in our cities and so uh, I think that's one of the reasons why um, he invited me to come here and to uh, proclaim to you on this International Mission Day uh, that God is bringing the nations to our city so that we would see the nations not only overseas but also in our own country. Now the scripture that we have for today is from Ruth chapter 1 verses 15 through 18. Ruth chapter 1 verses 15 through 18 which is probably uh, the first time you've ever heard this read in a Mission Sunday. Um, but bear with me and I'll try to explain why I chose this passage. The word of God says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now the title of the message is Three Clings to Remember in Missions, but I want to focus in on this phrase that Ruth was determined to go with Naomi even though 
the decision would cost Ruth much. She would be leaving everything that was comfortable, everything that was familiar to her, her language, her culture, her family. She would leave all of that to go with Naomi, to go among the people of God. Now, our church has just gone through a series this past year in the book of Ruth. I don't know if your church has ever gone through the book of Ruth, but we spent about 10 months in the book of Ruth. So I love Ruth, and uh, I understand why Boaz married her. Uh, Her character is absolutely beautiful. And I think this verse reflects the character of Ruth. Naomi was basically saying, after her sister um, had turned back, basically Naomi is trying to make it easy for Ruth to go back to that which is comfortable. She's trying to, trying to explain to her that there's going to be a great cost to following Naomi to go to Israel. And even in considering the cost, even in seeing how difficult it would be, Ruth did not go back. She was determined to be faithful to Naomi and ultimately to be faithful to the Israelite God. Now this idea of people being determined for the sake of God's glory over the nations is something that at least when I uh, minister to millennials in Chicago, I noticed that it's easy to inspire them uh, for a conference or for a day to be about the mission of God. It is more difficult to raise up disciples who are determined, no matter the cost, to be about his glory over the nations for the long haul. It's easy to do it for one day, hard to do it for a lifetime. But the task is massive, it is difficult, and it must be accomplished, and it will be accomplished because of God's promise. According to one survey, there are about 9,702 unique, distinct people groups in the world with over 7 billion people. Now we know in scripture that Jesus said that the gospel will go forth to all the ethno-linguistic people groups of the world and then the end will come. And so if we love Jesus, like I trust that many of you do, then we will long for his appearing. And if we long for his appearing, then we will long for the nations and the people groups of the world to know Christ. Of those people groups, even today, almost 4,000 of them are still considered unreached with about 3 billion individual people in our day today, with all of the technological advances still considered unreached. And so this massive task that is still remaining before the Great Commission will be fulfilled, we need people who are determined to be about God's glory, determined to see all the people groups in the world come to know Him, determined to spread the gospel no matter how difficult it gets. Not too long ago, we invited a sister from China to come and share her testimony in our church. And so I interviewed her on stage, and she was probably in her late 30s, early 40s, and um, really petite lady, really sweet lady. Uh, but as she shared her testimony, we, we saw something in her that was so powerful. She was converted in her late teenage years in China. At the time, that uh, area of China was uh, pretty uh, harshly persecuted if you would evangelize the gospel to others. But she was so transformed by the beauty of Christ that she was compelled to share Jesus in the face of persecution and opposition. Uh, Soon after she started to share the gospel, she was uh, caught by the authorities and she was thrown into prison. And when she was released from prison, she went home to her uh, parents and her father, who was kind of uh, her hero, the one that she looked up to, pleaded with her to stop sharing Jesus. He was not a believer. He said, surely now you've learned your lesson. 
I know you believe in Jesus. I'm okay with that. But don't tell others about Jesus because the cost is too high. Now, she had to consider not only the cost of her going to prison, but for her, what was even more difficult was the disapproval of her father. In Asian culture, to to find the respect of your parents is so important uh, to their identity and to their worth. And so she began to wrestle with uh, her earthly father's request. And as she read the scriptures, she began to realize that she was called to honor her father, earthly father, but even more so, she was called to honor her heavenly father. And so she decided in that moment to lay everything down, even the longing for approval from her earthly father. And she chose to obey God's word. And so she began to share the gospel again. She would uh, sleep at night with her shoes under her pillow because uh, the authorities would come sometimes in the middle of the night and she would literally take the shoes, quickly put them on, and she had a little hole through her uh, wall that she would burst through and run into the fields. Eventually she was caught again and she was thrown in prison and then eventually a third time she was thrown into prison and a third time they began to torture her. They put an electric baton into her mouth that would shock her repeatedly. They would take a cigarette butt and begin to burn her skin. They would take uh, shackles and put it on her ankles and, and make her work all day and then at night she would have to walk all night long with shackles around her ankles that would cause her skin to become raw and bloody and the next morning she would have to work again with no sleep. And she sat there, and I, I was weeping as she, I was interviewing her. And many in our church were weeping because of her determined nature to be faithful to God through the, uh, in the midst of difficult persecution and opposition. And I asked her why. And she talked about this night when she was walking around with her shackles on her ankles. And she said that um, in that moment, she was actually complaining to God. God, why are you punishing me for being faithful And the Lord spoke to her and told her about what his son Jesus had done for her sake. The suffering that he went through, the torture that he went through, the persecution that he went through. If anyone was determined, it will never be us, amen. It was Christ himself who was determined for your salvation. That became the foundation for her willingness to be determined to be faithful to God. And so if we want to be determined to be about the glory of God over the nations, and I pray that this church would be one of those churches that would have a rock-solid hope in the gospel that would fuel them through opposition and through radical generosity and through a radical obedience to be about his glory. If we're going to do that, there's three clings that I believe this text says that we need to remember. The first cling is to cling to one another. Cling to one another. Uh, Verse 16 says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Ruth was saying, Naomi, I'm not going to let you go alone. I'm not going to let you go. We're going to do this together. Now, the task cannot be done alone. We so often admire in America the individual missionary. We hold him or her up as a hero. We remember people like Hudson Taylor or Jim Elliott or Amy Carmichael. But we forget that Jim Elliott went with four other men and, four, and their wives and others helping with the task. Hudson Taylor, who's a hero of mine, he knew the task of evangelizing China was too massive for one person. So on the flyleaf of his Bible one day, he wrote, prayed for the 24 willing, skillful laborers at Brighton, June 25th, 1865. By 1887, he sent out a team of over 100 missionaries. And through them, 
God used their organization to reach many people in China. Gone are the days of doing this alone. The task is too large and too complex. Um, I've been on the mission field myself, and there's a loneliness, there's a discouragement, there's a weariness, there's a pain, there's a spiritual opposition that you will go through if you're about the nations and the glory of his name. And one of the things that has spurred me on when I wanted to quit, many times I've wanted to quit, and what spurred me on so often is those kindred spirits, those brothers and sisters who are faithful to the gospel and who, who, who speak encouraging words into my life and who pray with me, who I'm able to confess my weariness and my discouragement with. And without those people, there's no way I'd be up here today because I would have quit a long, long time ago. The beauty of the local church, the beauty of this specific church, is that together you can do much more. Together you can do much more than you can do individually. Even me, I was sitting here and just watching all of you come up and, and giving to the Lottie Moon offering and, and, and just seeing, I, I literally, even seeing them say thank you, I was just emotional, just tears. And just seeing young people and old people together, together, right? Seeing the parents and the kids, the grandparents coming together and giving together so that Lord willing you guys would reach that goal of $140,000 to be able to spread the gospel into the nations. You can do more together than you can do individually. And so what if your local church decided to adopt a people group together, or you decided to partner with church plants around the world, even in Chicago, or have a gigantic and delicious Thanksgiving feast open to the international students at Louisiana Tech? You know, it was, it was interesting, just uh, not too long ago, um, we planted our church, and uh, this past week, we, we do this every single Thanksgiving. We have a uh, Thanksgiving feast on Wednesday night where we invite internationals to come out on Wednesday night because most internationals can't go all the way home to their country for four days. And so they're, they're stuck usually in Chicago, and the highlight of their Thanksgiving weekend is not Thanksgiving because they don't really celebrate in their countries. Well, their highlight is Black Friday, right? And so we decided, hey, let's invite them over Wednesday night, and then on Thursdays we invite them into different homes. And so on Thursday night I invited 40 of them into my uh, little condo in Chicago. And um, so Wednesday night, it was so beautiful. I walked into our church, I was speaking uh, the gospel that night, and so uh, there were teams of people, young millennials, and they're mainly in their 20s, who came early, hours before, to decorate this little church building that we use on Saturdays. And, and I walked in and I saw 120 people gathered around there. Probably almost half of them do not know Jesus Christ. And I saw my team of people just talking to people, laughing with people, uh, serving the foods, decorating, uh, praying, getting ready for the worship set, and just, just looked out as a pastor, this church that is so new, and seeing us uh, reaching the lost. And that night, three people came to know Jesus Christ. And it happened not because I preached the gospel, but because of that teamwork together of all of us doing this together. And as a pastor, there's, 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 there's nothing more uh, gratitude, I mean, there's no more gratitude than seeing your own people together on mission for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. In John chapter 17, verse 20 and following, Jesus, in his prayer, right before he was crucified for the sin of the world, prayed this for the church. He prayed this for Temple Baptist. Did you know that? He prayed for you guys. And this is what he prayed. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. If you guys as a church go on mission for the glory of God together, what will happen is there will become a unity, a spiritual unity. And that spiritual unity will in and of itself bring people to Christ. The church needs this in this moment more than ever in our culture, amen? So let's do this together. The second cling that I believe is necessary for you to be like Sarah, that sister from China who is determined to be faithful to her God, is to cling to God. Cling to God. The word of God in verse 16 and following says this, Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I love that phrase, your God, my God. Now remember that Ruth was uh, in Moab and she was most likely a pagan. She probably worshipped idols, false gods. But somewhere along the line, I believe that Naomi, even in her bitterness, she was proclaiming to Ruth about the Israelite God and the mighty works of God. And somewhere along that line, Ruth got converted. When when Naomi first came into Ruth's life, God was Naomi's God. But over time, as she heard the mighty works of God, God became her own personal, intimate God. A conversion took place. This was not a religious transformation. This was a personal conversion. Ruth was a God, my God person. I preach in churches all around the nation and even around the world, and when I meet people... What I, what I find over, the, over all the world, it's not just in America, but there are people who are religious churchgoers and there are people who are God, my God people. And there's a radical difference and you can tell over time, can't you? The people who find God sweeter than this world, not always because we're broken and we're sinful and rebellious people, but people who have been experiencing the beauty and the joy and the intimate touch of God through his word. There's a difference between a religious person and a God, my God person. A religious person clings to God in public, but a God, my God person clings to God also in private. A religious person sings praises in public, but a God, my God person praises in public and in private. A religious person prays and reads the word in public, but a God, my God person quietly steals away to be with their heavenly father in private. So before we'll ever be mission senders or mobilizers or goers or missions prayer warriors, we must be first and foremost God, my God, people. You know, one of the things that I've been so blessed with is to have a mom who's my whole life been a God, my God person. She grew up in the church but in Korea but uh, didn't know Jesus Christ for 15 years as she was a churchgoer. But she met a friend who became a God, my God person and she knew that her friend had a peace with God that she did not have. And so she began to literally, desperately pursue God. She asked anybody who seemed to know God, how can I then be born again? How can I then be saved? Because even though she was a churchgoer, she knew she did not have peace with God. And so after a year or two of asking anybody and everybody about how to be saved, one night it hit her that the Bible was God's love letter to her and she realized that if her earthly father had written her a letter, she would take that letter and take a a, a pen and begin to underline it because she 
would find that letter so precious from her earthly father. And so she said that she had never read through a chapter of the Bible without being bored. But that night she opened up the Gospel of John and took a little pen and said, if this is the God, this, if this is my heavenly father, I'm going to read it as if it came from my earthly father, but even more importantly. And so one by one she began to open up John. And that night, into the early morning hours, she read through the Gospel of John. And when she got to John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, she was converted. And I wish my mom was here with you. She's 70-some years old now. She's fought through cancer three times. She's led more people to Christ than I can even count. She shares the Gospel her whole life. She comes to our church. It's about an hour and a half to two hours to come to our church on the bus, the train, and the bus. She brings a suitcase because then whenever she meets a non-believer in our church, she writes their name down. Comes back with a Bible, with a, a basic Christianity book from John Stott, and a bag of roasted peanuts. I don't understand why, but she does. <laughs> People get jealous when they don't get peanuts from my mom. It's like a mark of love in her church. And she has this fuel to see people come to know Christ because she was changed. I love when she shares her testimony, when that moment when John 14, 6 became real to her life, and she said that she felt her finite life connect with God's eternal life. She said she, she puts her arms out and says, I became free. And at 70 some years old, she still lights up like a little kid. And all my life, I saw her sharing the Bible, sharing the gospel with people from all kinds of backgrounds, difficult people, broken people, and seeing them get converted. And I realized that I can tell my church, go out to the nations, or I can tell them about the God who wants to save them. Because when you get born again by the Spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could you hold it in? You'll be like the Samaritan woman, and you will go out and you will tell people, this is the Savior, this is the Messiah, so that God might put in our hearts a desire to know his glory every day, and that will fuel you to the nations. The great theologian, missionary that I quoted before, John Stott wrote this, herein lies the supreme missionary motivation. It is neither obedience to the great commission, nor compassion for the lost, nor excitement over the gospel, but zeal for the honor of Christ's name. No incentive is stronger than the longing that Christ should be given the honor that is due to his name. We should be jealous for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. Amen? And if you're not there right now, it's okay. Because God is a gracious God. Come to him with your hard heart and repent and say, God, give me your heart for your glory. Help me to see afresh the beauty of of the cross, so that I would then be fueled to go out and to be about his glory. The last cling, and I believe the most important cling that is implicit in this text, is not our clinging to one another, though that's important. Not our clinging to God, though that is so precious. But the most important clinging, if we're going to be determined to be about his glory over the nations, is to remember that God clings to you when you can't cling to him. The text says, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, if you know the Israelite story, you know that when God delivered Israel out of Egypt through those powerful miracles and signs and wonders, 
He made a covenant with Israel and he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so again, I believe that Naomi began to evangelize Ruth and tell Ruth about what God did with Israel to bring them out of Egypt. He, he, she told them about, she told Ruth about the covenant that God made out of mercy and grace that Israel did not deserve, that Israel grumbled along the way. Yet God in his mercy and grace covenanted himself to sinners and to rebellious Israelites. And somehow Ruth began to believe this. And so when she says, your people shall be my people and your God my God, it is not her saying, I want God. It was her responding to God saying, I want you, Ruth. And so it was the mercy of God, the grace of God that caused Ruth to become a God my God person. She realized that God was pursuing Ruth before Ruth was ever even aware of who God was. I remember when I was in high school, I went to a boarding school in Illinois called the Illinois Math and Science Academy. They bring about 200 students uh, for the sophomore to senior year uh, to, to come to this school and to basically learn from these top educators. And um, I, I was the class clown in my high school. I was uh, not faithful to Christ during that time. But my freshman year in college, God radically converted me and then a year later called me into full-time ministry. So uh, in those 10 years after I graduated from high school, most of my friends just thought I was just this crazy clown who just made jokes and did crazy things that no one else was willing to do in high school. But they didn't know what God had done in my life. And so at our 10-year high school reunion, I had a I was a pastor by then. I asked my church members to pray for me because I was going to try to share Christ at our 10-year high school reunion. If you've ever been to Chicago, the tallest building, the Sears Tower, now known as the Willis Towers, we were having our 10-year reunion there. These are some of the most successful people in our state. Uh, the founder of YouTube went to our high school. Uh, all these different really successful people uh, gathering together. And I was going to share Jesus with them. So I went and I began to share Christ with uh, many of them and all of them began to ridicule me. People that I used to make fun of in high school began to make fun of me for my anti-intellectual view of the gospel. So I was getting discouraged. So I went to my one friend who I knew was a Christian. I said, how's your faith doing? He said, I don't believe anymore. I said, what happened? He said, I took a comparative religions class in college and I learned that all religions are the same. That's kind of what the millennial education is teaching people. All religions are the same. So I asked him this follow-up question that he probably never been asked before because everyone in America says that all religions are the same, even though they've never studied all these religions. So I said, what's the same about them? He said, uh, I just let him struggle for a while. And then finally he spits out uh, man's devotion to God. I said, wow, that's pretty good for not having an answer. I said, you're right. That is the center of every religion except for one. He looked confused. I said, because the center of Christianity is not our devotion to God. The center of Christianity is God's devotion to us, to Jesus Christ. And there's a radical, radical difference. So the greatest missionary of all time will never be you. The greatest missionary will never be Hudson Taylor or Jim Elliott. Billy Graham, the greatest missionary will always be God. Because God is the one who made a promise that he would win the nations to himself for his glory. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, probably the most important section of scripture if you're going to have a theology of missions. 
The Lord says to Abraham, now Abraham did not know God before this. He says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now understand the context. Abram was 75 years old. His wife was 65 years old. And they had never been able to have a kid. Scientifically and medically, it was impossible for them to have descendants. And these are the two people that God says, through you I will make descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he choose these people? Why not choose a bunch of teenagers or a bunch of people in their 20s who can actually have kids? The reason why is because he wants to teach a lesson to Abram and to Sarah and to the rest of us. This is not about you. This is about God and his glory. This is about his word and that he will never lie, that he will be faithful to his promise. And it doesn't matter who he calls, no matter how uh, inadequate or insufficient or how shameful your past, it's about his glory. In fact, I believe that God wants to use the weak. Those of you who say, I can never be a missionary, that's exactly the kind of person that God wants to use. Those of you who say that that my, my life has never been radical enough, that's okay because Christ in you is the radical one, never you. So when God makes a promise that all the peoples of the earth will be around that throne in Revelation 7 verse 9, worshiping the king, he is faithful and he will use even broken and weak churches like us because he will get the glory he will get the glory. It's interesting that you could basically go through the rest of Scripture and say that the rest of Scripture is really the question, is God going to be faithful to this promise? And when you go through the Bible and even through salvation history, through the church history, it looks many times like God's not faithful. You go through the Old Testament and Israel's constantly rebelling. You go through the New Testament. By the time Jesus is um, crucified, there's basically like one disciple at the cross. Uh, By the time he ascends, there's only a few hundred. By the time that Peter preaches the gospel, there's only 3,000. I mean, there's not a lot of stars in the sky at that point. Then you go through the Middle Ages and the uh, the corruption of the church. And it just seems like it's not going to happen. And what's interesting is there's a study done in 19, uh, about the church in the last hundred or so years uh, comparing 1910 to 2010 by the Pew Research for Global Christianity. And what was interesting is the last hundred years or so was the bloodiest uh, century in the history of the church where I believe Satan reads the scriptures as well and wants the church to stop expanding. And so what happened was they did a study about uh, the church all around the world. What was fascinating was in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in 1910, there were, about, uh, there were less than 9 million believers in sub-Saharan Africa in 1910. Then Satan does a full-on assault against the, pers- or the church, persecutes them, kills them. And in 100 years, the question then would be, was God faithful? Did the church grow? And what was interesting is they found in 100 years, after the bloodiest century in the history of the church, there were now 516 million believers in sub-Saharan Africa in those 100 years. That God is doing something, even in Asia today, where uh, there's about a tenfold increase from about 28 million believers in 1910 to 285 million now in Asia in 2010. That's happening now, in our time. There's been the most exponential growth in the church in the midst of the most difficult uh, opposition and persecution in the history of the church. Why? Because I believe we're in that fourth quarter with a two-minute warning. You know what I mean? 
And that God is literally saying, okay, if the church will not awaken, I will do it myself. I will bring the nations to you. I will bring them to Louisiana Tech. I will bring them to Chicago. I will bring them to the universities. So that, so that just about nine, ten years ago, there were only a little over a half a million international students in the U.S. And today, there's probably over a million international students studying in our universities today. Why is God doing this? Because he wants you to know he wants the glory of his name over the nations. And so what we've done as a church is we've said, all right, as God's bringing the nations into our own city, we'll do everything we can to be hospitable to them so that we can proclaim Christ to them, see some of them get saved, disciple them, and then send them back to their countries. Far more effective than we would ever be. A professor of mine from Gordon-Conwell, who's now the president of Asbury Seminary, wrote this. 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. That's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. This group that we want to keep out is actually the group that we most need for spiritual transformation. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. I'm out of time, so let me just close with just a really quick story. When we first started our church a little over four years ago in the near west side of Chicago on a Saturday night at 4 p.m. in an African-American neighborhood, uh, we had 20 people on our core team. And our prayer was that one person would come to Christ through this church plan. That's all we, we just, God, just one person, it'll be worth it. The first week of that church plan, 168 people showed up. And as I preached, uh, I looked out in that crowd and I usually try to find that one or two people who are actually listening to my sermons. <laughs> or at least pretend like they care. And, and I'm looking at this guy, and he's like literally on the edge of his seat smiling the whole sermon. So I ask around to find out who this guy is, and I find out he's not even a believer. He's a Buddhist who's married to a Christian, who the Christians hate, hated the church, so they stopped going to church together. He always wanted to learn about Christianity, but because uh, the churches that he visited with his wife were so exclusive and cliquish, he decided that he'd go to a church plant because he could, figured there couldn't be any cliques because it's a brand new church. So he came to our church, dragged his Christian wife to church, sat on the edge of his seat and didn't even believe in Jesus. Four weeks later or so, I approached him. I said, what do you think about Christianity? He says, um, I, I hope one day that I'll live like Jesus lived. I said, well, before you live like Jesus lived, you need to come to Jesus as your Savior. I walked through the gospel with him, and I asked him, do you believe this? He said, Dave, I already believe this. I said, when did you believe this? He said, the first week you preached the gospel at your church plant. When you preached it, I knew that it was true. So that day we prayed to receive Christ and tears in his eyes. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. Fifteen minutes later, he approaches me and says, Pastor Dave, I heard that you're doing a Bible study for students from Thailand who don't know Jesus. Can I help you out? This guy's been saved 15 minutes, and he already wants to lead others to Christ. We call that an overachiever. (laughs) So the next day before this Bible study, I asked him, I said, bro, can you share your testimony tonight? He said, Dave, what's a testimony? He was so unchurched, he didn't know what a testimony was. So I said, just tell him what Jesus did to you yesterday. We get to this Bible study, and uh, we have a translator who translates from, my, uh, from English to Thai. And uh, of that group, only one of them had even heard of Jesus. The rest of them, one of them said, What's, I've heard of that word Jesus, but I have no idea what it means. So I share the gospel with them, and when I'm done sharing the gospel, one of them cuts me off and says, if this is the gospel, it's too good to be true. And I said, you understand the gospel then. Then I turned to Nick, I said, can you share your testimony? He looks at them with intensity, and he says, have you guys ever experienced pure joy? And they said, no. And he said, neither had I, because I was, grew up a Buddhist just like you. And then he went on to share what Jesus did in his life. Five months later, one of those students, four days before she moved back to Thailand, received Jesus Christ as her Savior. We baptized her four days before she moved back 
to Thailand. When I look back at that journey and how God has literally brought the nations through those moments, what I realize is three things had to happen for our church to grow to five churches, 35 nations, and almost 1,000 people. We clung to one another. Our church, we do it together. We do life together. We do ministry together. We pray together as a church. Two, we cling to God as our God. This is not a religion. You can't do religion with millennials. You need to show them that Jesus is real and intimate in your life. And three, we hold on to the gospel. We hold on to God's promise that this passionate glory of God for the nations is not our passion first. It is his. And his glory is at stake. And when we get those three things, I believe God will use a church to unleash his gospel for the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this church. And even as I preach, God, and don't know a lot of these people, my heart feels just a tiny bit of your passion for this church. The resources in this church, the giftings in this church, the hearts in this church, the faith over the generations in this church. God, use it for your glory. Help them to do it together. Help them to do it walking with you in your word. And help them to do it resting in your promises in scripture. For the glory of your name over all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.